0: Hello and welcome to the NIHR Mental Health Policy Research Unit's podcast on Telemental Health. My name is Dr. Kitty Saunders. I'm a research associate with the Policy Research Unit, or PRU for short, and I will be your host. Later in this episode, you will also hear the voices of researchers Merla Schlieff and Dr. Una Foy, as well as clinicians Dr. Tom Graham and Professor Sonia Johnson, And finally, one of our lived experience researchers, Raza. If you aren't familiar with The Pru, we're a National Institute of Health Research funded team based at UCL and King's College London. We aim to support the Department of Health and others involved in making plans for mental health services to make decisions based on good policy-relevant evidence. This is one of two podcasts that we are releasing on our telemental health work. This is our discussion episode, where you will hear conversations around our telemental health results and research processes, while the other synthesises our research findings. If you're not familiar with our findings, you might want to listen to that episode first. You can find it wherever you found this episode. To kick off our discussions, you'll hear a conversation between me, Merla and Una, all of whom were researchers on our Rapid Realist review of what works for whom in telemental health and how we reflect on the research process and our research findings. We thought that we would start by exploring the findings that we thought were the most interesting, the most powerful, and the most important. I wonder, Marla, if you want to go first?
1: Yes, very happy to. So what I found most powerful relates to what I would say, and I think Una and Kitty can agree, our key finding of the Telemental Health Rapid Realist Review, and that is around the service user's choice and preferences regarding telemental health aspects. So modality and the frequency and duration of sessions and how important that is. And I want to talk about it a little more because I really caught myself having had certain expectations about people's preferences regarding certain aspects of telemental health before we conducted this piece of research which then turned out not to be true so specifically for building therapeutic relationships when using telemental health i kind of assumed that everyone would prefer video calls to really see the person and see the gestures to develop that trust and understanding because that is what I would experience when I would meet new people online or via phone calls. But we actually found that some people prefer chat messages or prefer telephone calls to develop a therapeutic relationship and develop that trust just because they feel less self-conscious and just are able to open up a lot more easily. And so that moment of realizing even the most basic things quote-unquote that I thought would apply to everyone really don't apply to everyone and so obviously that just emphasizes again the importance of service user choice and really needing to discuss with every single service users what they want and prefer in regards to telemedicine.
0: Yeah I think that was a really interesting finding and I think also there were quite a lot of things that challenged our beliefs or expectations that we already had when we started this project and we're going to go on to talk a bit about the service user involvement but that was a huge part in developing this study to be something that was actually really reflective of of lived experience of services and also a really good kind of example of why it's really important to not just have researchers and academics leading research because actually, we don't, we don't have all the experiences in the world to, to use and to kind of have as foundations for our research.
1: And I think at the same time, it was then again interesting to see that not all service users agreed um, in regards to their, to their experiences and preferences, and that the same goes for the clinicians. Um, so while there might be similarities in the, in the experiences of the clinicians or the service users, they would still have individual perspectives and experiences regarding
0: telemental health. Una, what, what do you think? The need
2: for personalised approaches is always so important, and I think that that's a real theme across a lot of our work at the Pring. But I suppose to be really boring, something I kind of, whenever COVID hit, we all went through that same transition to having to go remote, and it's just been really interesting to reflect on what that looks like. When you have a range of different needs and also kind of the costs related, the different platforms, how different services have different platforms. And that can be an absolute nightmare for information sharing, those sorts of things. Stuff that I don't think I would have ever thought about. I think we all kind of moved on to things like Teams and Zoom and kind of just automatically went, oh, okay, that was easy. So it must be really easy when you're delivering care. And I know for myself, seeing my move remotely to GP surgery was just like, for me, I went, oh, that's amazing. I love that. I don't have to interact with anyone else, but I've never really thought about it from a therapeutic stand. So I think what Merla you've shared um, is really important. And it's maybe made us think about other aspects like the digital divide and how there are going to be people excluded and being able to reflect on how that might look for individuals with different mental health problems or in different areas of the country. So even, you know, my Wi-Fi probably will drop out at some point during this podcast. But, you know, thinking of all those other things that really come into play that I not think I'd thought about
0: before. I think that's such an important point to make. And something that kind of feeds into that was one of our papers looked at the pre-COVID literature on telemental health and actually found that it was quite efficacious and quite good generally but it was like the comparison between places that had deliberately planned to implement telemental health compared to the COVID or post-COVID literature where there was little to no planning, there was little to no Kind of strategy, it was just purely needs based. And there was like an emergency situation where it just overnight flipped. And the differences between those situations is actually huge. And it would be really wrong and incorrect for research to assume that they're the same and that the outcomes would be the same.
1: And in addition to that, obviously, you also have to keep in mind that during the pandemic, almost everyone had to moved to telemental health and so these people were probably not included in the pre-pandemic literature so only people that already said yes and were optimistic about using telemental health might have been included in these previously previous implementation studies
0: i think research has to be quite careful in how we interpret quite simple statistics regarding telemental health especially around things like uptake and adherence to appointments, particularly around the COVID literature, and conflating those with acceptability, in that actually people had to go to appointments online if they were to go at all. If they were to receive care, they had to do it on video calls or on the telephone. And I think the the kind of the findings that actually uptake was relatively high and that there wasn't massive dropout. Doesn't mean that people like telemental health or want to keep using telemental health. At that moment in time, they just have no choice. So, research, I think, has to be a little bit more astute to those nuances.
1: Just to add to that point, at the same time, we then have to take dropout rates a lot more seriously for the COVID literature, because then people really weren't able to engage with services at all, either because they didn't have, again, the technology, the means, the knowledge to do so, or really because they thought it's a better option to not receive any care versus receive telemental health care. So the dropout numbers actually are a lot more, to look at these dropout numbers more carefully and specifically is even more important, I feel, for the COVID literature.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point. The thing that I found most powerful, I think, and relevant to my sort of personal research interests were around the safety concerns around telemental health, about the concerns around coercive control in the household and how that might influence people's ability to safely engage with telemental health. And our understanding of domestic violence and and coercive control is developing to include more of an awareness around the monitoring of technology, um, the monitoring of of space, and also finances that might be relevant for people who are having to pay for extra data, maybe even pay for a different device, and the kind of difficulties that that might bring someone who's living in, in an abusive household. And I think that kind of intersection between technology and safety in the home is really important for people delivering these services to think about, especially considering that actually violence in the home is, is really prevalent and it's not something that's going to be happening to maybe one or two of the hundreds of people that you see. It's actually very likely to be a factor for a number of those people. And then the second thing that I thought was interesting and something that I hadn't considered from a kind of practicality perspective for young people engaging with telemental health was that actually having access to online services might minimise the disruption to their life. So young children or, or young people have to be in school the majority of the day, but that's also quite likely to be when appointments would take place. And so actually, if they're able to take sessions from school in a private space that actually that's a really nice way of embedding healthcare, mental healthcare into people's lives that's not disruptive. I thought that was a really nice kind of applicable thing for people to think about when considering whether or not telemental health is right for them, whether that's for them personally or for their service.
2: The flip side of that is also that having things so integrated and continual kind of being able to have appointments and things. I think for staff, particularly delivering tele-mental health care, is that you have meetings one after another after another. And actually that chance that travel used to provide for clinicians to kind of reflect and debrief or write notes and do all that other stuff that comes alongside that enhances care it's starting to be missing in some areas whenever tele mental health allows that tight ingrainment. So I think it's it's a catch 22 and it's about those cultures and embedding, as you said, Kitty, earlier, that it's about embedding it right and having all these processes thought out rather than simply just here's COVID and let's all use telehealth.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a balance, isn't it? And I don't I think that probably what what we would say we found is that the balance was off when it was just rapidly implemented over covid with lots of staff both you know in stakeholder consultations but also in the research reporting quite high levels of burnout quite high levels of stress and potentially kind of managerial levels of a service thinking oh well this is great we can fit in more people because now there's less time spent traveling or less time spent commuting in the morning Uh, so that's great we can just add in more slots but actually that's not an effective and sustainable way of delivering telemental health
1: and that also not only goes for clinicians but also service users and that is actually something again that didn't necessarily come up in the literature but mainly our consultations when service users said they want that different space to get out of their home And to have that time to travel to an appointment and then to travel back to the home and kind of collect themselves rather than just merging the two.
0: It's really important to relate it to both sides because a lot of these things that we've talked about in this podcast are actually relevant to service users and staff. I think we've kind of alluded to it in our discussion so far that we worked really closely with lots of stakeholders, especially in our rapid realist review that we've talked about in this podcast. Um, we worked with clinicians, we worked with academics, we worked with uh, lived experience researchers, and we held webinars to make sure that we had representation from nonprofits, all sorts of different people to give us as much information as as we could take really to synthesize it together to come up with our findings and i thought that it would be nice for us to finish this podcast with some reflections from us about working in this way and also working entirely online so kind of hilariously we suffered all of the issues that you could experience with telemental health probably in the process of doing these papers so yeah i wondered what the two of you thought it
2: was intense And I think that doing it remotely is really added to that intensity and the irony of Wi-Fi dropping, freezing, having only two rooms. So whenever me and my partner are both working, then it kind of having funny Wi-Fi and feedback and stuff. So I think it certainly made me reflect a lot about what was being said and going, oh, yeah, that's true for me. That's really interesting. And just... The fact that, I mean, Merla, I hadn't met in person until after we'd done most of the realist review, which kind of the irony as well of that, of building up these relationships. And I feel like I've seen you guys more than I've seen my family (laughs) over the last two years. So I think that that's really interesting then to be like, oh, okay, so this is how this must feel for individuals and kind of reflecting, but as well, just having such an amazing group of people around us to support and being able to have our ideas kind of bounced around and seeing how that works practically in real life for all different perspectives. It's a lot of the in-person and reality of telehealth rather than simply just what previous research has said, which I think is a good thing because you only ever get the good side in published literature sometimes. So we've been able to get the kind of good, bad and ugly and and intense as well.
1: Yes, I definitely agree. I also thought that the similarities between our remote working in our research setting and remote working in our telemental health setting were quite striking. And just to pick up on what you just said with it's being nice to have such a nice team around us. And I? I agree. And it again showed to be able to send a Slack message before or after a meeting to debrief or to ask someone for help or emotional support. That was really nice. And that is, again, something that telemental health might provide with chat mess- messages between sessions. And then similarly, I thought it was interesting how in tele health, and also in our remote working process, some barriers to involving different people, different stakeholders were massively reduced. We could, we were able to not only involve people across the UK, so not just people based in London, but also outside of the UK in our webinars we held. But then at the same time, we did exclude, digitally excluded people in our research process, even though that was one of our focus Areas of the telemental health rapid realist review, just because we were dependent on that remote working. So yeah, I think our process, again, and the reduction of barriers, but also the increase of barriers, is quite well reflected in our own research process.
0: Yeah, it was a bit meta, wasn't it? We were kind of existing and doing what we were talking about in the paper and the things that we were writing about were the things that actually we we had experienced as well in the process of creating the piece of work or the pieces of work. I liked what you said, Merla, about sending messages after meetings just to kind of check in about something or to check up on someone because we had the precedent set that technology was kind of how we were Doing things. So it was normal to ping someone a message and you know know that they'll get it and that they'll probably reply. Whereas before, I don't know that it would have been that normal, but that was actually really nice. And like you say, Mella, that's something that maybe is actually really applicable for telemental health, and that sometimes people might just need a really quick check-in, and that suits them just fine. Next, you'll hear from Dr. Tom Graham who worked with us on the Rapid Realist Review, and here we reflect on the research findings from his perspective as a clinician. I am sat with Tom Graham. Tom, I wondered if you wanted to introduce yourself.
3: My name is Tom Graham. I'm a counselling psychologist and CBT therapist, and I work with people who are suffering a range of different anxiety disorders
0: we have so many findings but i wondered if there were one or two that you wanted to you wanted to touch on and how important they are for your work or how kind of powerful you thought they were
3: well i think that a lot of what's what's come out in the in the results the findings is also really helpful to inform Teaching of new clinicians. So, you know, in my role I supervise and provide some teaching to trainees. And I can think of, you know, being in a supervision group and somebody talking about a session that they've just recently had where the person had popped up on on their phone at the bottom of their garden and it was like freezing cold. And it was kind of like, okay, well, how do we? These are the new sort of challenges that we were trying to work out. How do you manage that situation then? Is that is that going to be uh, Sort of a viable setting for them to have this session with you, and yet, so why have they ended up at the bottom of the garden? Maybe that was the only place they could do the session, actually, because there were people at home, and and so, sort of trying to navigate things like that. Um, we were trying to kind of work out what to do as we went along, and so, yeah, I think that having some of the guidance that the paper has managed to produce, I think, will also help to um, set the scene for for teaching and and supervising new clinicians. Uh, new trainees who for whom like this will just be the way that things are now they'll be coming into um, delivering therapy in a kind of blended therapeutic environment where perhaps both options are going to be available and if we think about the kind of safety and safeguarding and risk assessment aspect of it I mean that's obviously a tricky thing for all of us and um, but if you're a new trainee and you're seeing somebody and that presents in in one of your sessions and you're at home and you're a trainee and you can't just kind of at the end of that open your office door and or go to another part of the, the clinic to, to seek out your supervisor, you're just sort of at home and, and scrabbling around to try and find your supervisor's number or see if they're free to meet on Teams. I think that can also be quite sort of scary and, um, and presents other, yeah, more kind of systemic challenges in terms of things like just, yeah, feeling confident, managing risk and that sort of thing. I think it's really hopeful and I think that um, there were times I suppose where we were having discussions which um seemed to be saying, uh kind of flitting between saying, you know, tele health video calling therapy is like the best thing since sliced bread and then others saying it's absolutely terrible, not for everybody. And I think that that was a really sort of helpful, uh, messy dialogue to have at times that moved up and down the continuum and and I think that it's come out with some really sensible uh, I, I guess almost I think the best kind of results are are those that can be read and feel like well yes this just makes sense and it feels like common sense hopefully and obviously working along um people with lived experience and and clinicians and researchers and, and sort of putting heads together and saying well what what seems to sort of make common sense here uh and coming up with some some ideas that hopefully when you know disseminated more widely or and to the public that people will sort of read this and say well yeah this does make sense and it sounds like i feel kind of confident and comfortable with it yeah i feel kind of quite positive and hopeful that actually this is setting the scene for perhaps what comes next but also as just the beginning of like an ongoing dialogue about it as we continue to find our way
0: that's great thank you so much tom you're welcome this third discussion features professor sonia johnson we discuss our research process as well as her experiences with technology in her clinical and her research roles So I'm sat with Professor Sonia Johnson, who was deeply involved in these projects. I wondered if you would like to introduce yourself and describe a bit about your involvement in the Telemental Health projects.
4: Hi, yeah, I'm the Director of the Policy Research Unit. I work at UCL as a Professor of Social and Community Psychiatry, and I'm also a Consultant Psychiatrist in an early intervention service for psychosis, where I mainly see young people with bipolar. So, during the pandemic, as well as researching telemental health, I've been trying to make it work in my clinical role.
0: Now that the work is over, I wonder what your reflections are on what we did and what we found. It was a
4: huge piece of teamwork involving all sorts of stakeholders. And I think one interesting thing about it, given that it was focused on using video technology and remote technology, is actually I don't think we could have done the research in the way we did in the time we did without video technologies. So while we were exploring all sorts of shortcomings in video technology, actually at the same time, we were really making a lot of use of its potential. What's interesting to me thinking about my NHS role is that while I can see the kind of strengths of video technology and its potential, in my clinical role, it ends up being much more of a source of frustration, really. And that's often because of quite basic things like The building I work in doesn't have a particularly good connection. It doesn't have good Wi-Fi. It's also full of shared offices and open plan offices. It's extremely difficult to be in a room by yourself. So um, headphones work to some extent. I often find myself explaining who else is in the room before making a call I have learned through our project to be quite careful in asking people who's there and where they are and whether they have privacy, but I'm not sure that that's general practice. There's an interesting contrast between experiences of video technology in the university and in research, where I feel it doesn't always work, but it's basically got quite a bit to offer that we're making use of. And in the NHS, where there are times when it feels it works well, and you get a a good connection with someone who feels at home with technology, and maybe wouldn't have come into the office. So there, there, there are moments when it feels it works effectively, or you get a family member who's far away and is able to join a call and wouldn't have been able to be part of a meeting otherwise. But I do feel like it all needs to be better organised and we need better technology and we need a physical environment that's suitable if we're going to carry on at scale. And I hope that there's a framework that comes from our Realist Review is helpful in just thinking about the the basics, the considerations about privacy, about how to prepare both staff and service users, how to get a decent connection, how to think about relationships. I hope those things may help people actually start to harness the benefits of video technology rather than just giving up on it.
0: Finally, I talked to Raza, who is one of our lived experience working group members at the Policy Research Unit. He's contributed to several studies on telemental health and worked with us throughout COVID. Here we discuss his reflections about working online during a pandemic. I didn't, uh,
5: thankfully, I didn't have any technological issues which i was very grateful for because i'm not very tech savvy so I, I know a lot of mental health service users and also mental health service user researchers had that issue and um i know that many people were very, very in the therapeutic community they'd been there for years and then suddenly they left because it switched to online and for all kinds of reasons whether it was uh, a sense of not having privacy in the home environment or even a sense that if they said something very emotional, they wouldn't be able to offload anywhere. They wouldn't even be able to go for, for a walk <laughs> for, for part of lockdown, you know, because it's not just about receiving the service. It's also about, you know, the walk there or, or the train ride there. And then maybe you have a coffee with someone else. So we really were alone. So I think having, in fact, the work, the PRU work was actually lifeline to me because it, it helped keep me sane. So the the, the um Lug work was actually a lifeline. It gave me a, a mental focus. It was a lifeline just to see people and talk to people. And sometimes afterwards I would have more informal discussions on a one-to-one basis with with people. So I think on a even on a mental health level, I really appreciated. Being able to do that work, because I would have been driven insane without some kind of focus. The sense of apocalyptic isolation, that's how it was, actually. It was like a kind of apocalyptic isolation, quite frightening, actually. So I overcame my technological fears quite early on. I'm not very tech savvy, but I think out of a sense of desperation, I just wanted to see people and talk to them. So the pre work gave me a focal point. I was also able to use what I was experiencing in the here and now (laughs) to inform the work. So in a strange way, it was kind of a way of processing the trauma of the whole COVID period by writing about it, by engaging with other people to reflect and think about it.
0: The idea of technology being a lifeline is the reality for how it was for so many people. I know that we are very critical, rightly so, of technology and the issues that come with it. But for many people it was the only way of keeping some kind of connection with people that you knew, with new people, with people that you wanted to learn from and communicate with. It really was the only way of, of doing things and I think that that's a really powerful thing that you've you've just said that the work involving technology at the time that it did really meant that people could be together and that togetherness wasn't there otherwise.
5: No, no. And obviously, you know, working and being paid for it, it gave me a sense of role um, at a time when I didn't have any other role, really, at that time. So for me, the work was very helpful and very important on a personal level. And I feel I was able to articulate, particularly highlight some of the potentially exclusionary aspects of the technology. This was through my own personal experiences of of seeing how some people just dropped off the radar after having been engaged in intensive therapy for three and a half years.
0: It's hard, isn't it? Because we, for telemental health purposes, we we really need to know what it was that meant that those people dropped out, and what the problem was, and how we could
5: sort of address that. But I can sort guess. Of a, I can kind of have a bit of a guess.
0: Yeah, you could guess, but they're they're quite an unknown know. group because we can't contact them this way. So yeah. I think, yeah, future future research really needs to have a think about that, and, and clinicians who are working in this field at the moment. Working in a hybrid way really need to have a have a, a think about how to address those issues properly because, as you say, there are people who were very committed to going and receiving care and and then all of a sudden, just yeah. it just didn't work anymore.
5: I, I think if even some of them dropped out, then I think that really needs investigating. I think there's also something about the being with people in a room which was just completely missing. It's it's even I feel that if people are in a room there is something that's communicated and that's quite can be quite reassuring actually just the physical presence of being with others is something that is lost and also you know the whole body language thing it's kind of less I mean you can kind of see the whole person and you know even making a journey to go somewhere that has a role in the whole therapeutic thing because you're making a journey you're leaving your home And you're going somewhere else. Then you can have coffee with some people afterwards. There's a whole social aspect. It's not just the actual therapy or mental health intervention. There's there's more to it than that.
0: I think what you said about the kind of social aspect in real life, going to appointments and going to sessions with other people, it's a kind of multifaceted endeavour. And I think you've spoken to that really, really clearly and really well. Thank you so much to Merla, Una, Tom, Sonia, and Raza for taking part in this discussion episode. I hope it's given you, the listener, some insight into our ways of thinking and reflecting on telemental health as researchers, clinicians, and also from a lived experience perspective. Thank you so much for listening and please do listen to our results episode to hear about our findings in greater detail. A huge thank you to all the authors on our papers and a particular thank you to the lived experience researchers for sharing their time and perspectives with us. Please do follow The Prue on Twitter. We are on at mentalhealthprue. We'd love to know what you thought of this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.